0: Welcome to the Sunday School class for Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad we could have this time together. For our Sunday School lessons, we are using the Nazarene Quarterly, and we just began a new quarter beginning in September. Today's lesson is actually going to be a continuation of the lesson from September 13th. Uh, The lesson was entitled, Not Just Rules. The text came from Exodus chapter 19, where uh, God was preparing the Israelites to receive the law at Mount Sinai. And so we are going to continue looking at that today. But before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. I want to pray the prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And I would say, Amen. Well, today's lesson, as we've said, comes from Exodus chapter 19. Now, the Israelites are on a trip. Uh, several years ago, my older brother lived down in Texas on the Rio Grande Valley, so right down at the border with Mexico. And occasionally, my mother and father and I, we would make a trip down to see him. Now, I found out that I had a totally different approach to traveling from my dad. When I traveled, I preferred to jump on the interstate and get there as quickly as possible. But my dad liked to take the state roads. He liked to travel through the different towns to kind of see what was out there along the way. Well, if you had my attitude toward traveling, you would not want to be where the Israelites found themselves. They were traveling through the desert to the promised land, but God has them make a detour to Mount Sinai. Now, last week, we looked at how they had arrived at Mount Sinai, and God was going to do something totally unprecedented for them. He was going to make a covenant relationship, but with an entire group of people. He had done this earlier with Abraham, but now he was going to extend it to the nation of Israel as a whole. And this was something that had not been done before. Now, God was going to give the law to His people, and it had two purposes. It would uh, acquaint them with what it means that God is holy, and it would show them how they must live in order to have God's presence among them. Leviticus 19:2 says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So last week, we looked at what it means for God to be holy. You know, saying God is holy is not the same as saying that God is loving or kind or powerful. Uh, But holiness is not an attribute of God, not something God does. Holiness, rather, is who God is. It's His essential nature as God, the composite of everything that God is. A.W. Tozer says, Holy is the way God is. To be holy, He does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. And so holiness really is God's consummate perfection and glory as God. We can say that God's holiness is His Godness. You know, to be holy means God is God. And that holiness is expressed in two distinct ways. First of all, God's holiness means that God is completely other. He is unique in himself. It's it's expressed in his uniqueness as God. Totally different, totally separate from anything else. God is set apart. He's different not just in degree, but in kind from anything else. In a class by himself, you might say. John Piper writes, God's holiness is his absolute uniqueness, his incomparableness. Now, a second aspect of God's holiness is expressed in his absolute moral purity. God's holiness means that he can never be anything but morally pure, morally right. He cannot be anything less than perfectly moral. And so when we think of anything that is good, when we think of Kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and patience and truthfulness. God is all of that, and He's that to the infinite degree. God can never be anything but that. He can never be anything below that. Now, God's holiness is difficult for us to grasp. It's hard for us to adequately define it. But this is not just a theological discussion holiness and our understanding of holiness has an important relevance to our daily lives like the children of Israel we are part of a covenant relationship with God a relationship that requires our holiness Jesus commanded Matthew 5:48 be ye therefore perfect even as your father which is in heaven is perfect R C Sproul in his book The Holiness of God writes that the holiness of God is one of the most important ideas that a Christian can ever grapple with. It is basic to our whole understanding of God and of Christianity. So, we come to Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, God is preparing His people. He's teaching them what it means that God is holy and what it means for them to be holy what it means for them to be in a covenant relationship with God and to have God's presence, God's Spirit to live among them. God was doing something totally new, entering into this covenant relationship with an entire group of people. And it was necessary that they understand who He was, that He was holy, and what it would mean for them to be holy. What would it mean for them to be His people, living in this relationship with Him? God is going to give them the law. And this law will help set out all of this in detail to show what's required of them in order to be holy. So the law is going to be incredibly valuable and precious to them. We we looked at verses last week of how the psalmist described the law as something more valuable than gold, more precious than silver. So there is a lot of value to the law. And in the New Testament, when Paul is describing the law, he's asked the question, well, you know, was there any value to having the law? Did it do the Jewish people any good? And his answer to that was, there was incredible value in having the law. It did them a lot of good in every way. And so God is wanting to show to them what it means for him to be holy and for them to be his holy people. And so he begins by showing them that the key to holiness is consecration. Now, this is a word we don't use a whole lot, but it would have been familiar to to the Israelites. To, To be consecrated is to be set aside, to be set apart for God's exclusive use. And God is going to require two specific acts of consecration here at Mount Sinai the Israelites are going to have to consecrate themselves. God is going to demand that they wash their clothes and that they abstain from sexual relations. But the Israelites are also going to have to consecrate the mountain itself. They are going to be told, build a barrier around this mountain, enclose it, and make sure that you don't set foot upon it. The mountain is going to be for God's exclusive use. So, God is telling them, if you're going to be holy, it's going to require you to consecrate yourselves. So, why does this matter to us? God is calling us to be in a covenant relationship. So, we too need to know what it means to be holy. A lesson that we really need in today's church You know, our church today, we kind of limp along. The Bible talks about those who have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And that fits our church to a large degree, you know. And by our church, I mean the universal church. Today's church is a church which doesn't seem to understand what it truly means to be holy. And so God has something much better for the church. A life of holiness, a life of fullness, a life of power. But it begins with consecration. So God is preparing the Israelites to be His holy people, to have His presence live among them. Now, first His presence is going to be in the tabernacle, and then later He's going to reside in the temple. God is preparing us for something even more intimate, where we actually become God's temple. God's spirit, God's presence inhabits us, lives within us. So we want to take a close look at how God prepared the Israelites to be his people and how God wants to prepare us to be his people. And in both cases, the key is this idea of consecration. So as we said, consecration is the idea of setting something apart for God's exclusive use, taking it away from any other function or purpose that it might have and dedicating it to God's service. And so the Israelites were consecrating themselves, that they would be God's people set apart for His exclusive use, and He would be their God. So, why did God demand that they consecrate themselves? God wanted them to understand an essential element of His holiness. And this was, He wanted them to understand His absolute moral purity. God was asking them to consecrate themselves, to set themselves aside so that they would understand He is a moral God and He wants uh, a moral essence to His people. And He tells them, You are to consecrate yourselves by washing your clothes. And we look at this and we think, well, you know, that's not such a big deal. You know, we wash clothes all the time. I put in a load of laundry this morning. It's something we probably do on almost a daily basis. But washing your clothes was not an easy thing to do for a desert people. You know, to be in the desert means that there's not that much water around. And so washing their clothes required considerable effort and commitment on their part. Uh, I, I think back to a story that President Lyndon Johnson told. He grew up in West Texas back in the early part of the 1900s. And this was a time when rural Texas had no electricity and a lot of times there was no running water. And he talked about how difficult it was for his mother to wash their clothes. This was not a simple task of throwing something in the washer and then going off to watch TV for 30 minutes. She literally spent all day long in hard physical labor, carrying water, heating water, stirring clothes, uh, wringing out the clothes, all of this just to get the clothes clean. And in fact, my mother tells of how her mother set aside one day of the week, and this happened to be a Monday, but Monday was wash day. It was a day you set aside to do the laundry. And so we can see that this wasn't something just to be taken lightly. God was requiring them to do something that took considerable effort on their part. But God was making the point, if I'm going to live among you, if you're going to be my holy people, then you must consecrate yourselves. You must be clean. You must get rid of any filth, any dirt that's among you, anything that's going to, to soil you. Now, God was, was making it pretty clear. This is not necessarily God being concerned about physical dirt. It's not the idea of outward cleanliness. But God wants to make it clear. His people to, were to be a moral people. They were to be free from any kind of inward sin or impurity. Now, a second aspect of them consecrating themselves was to abstain from sexual relations. What was God wanting to teach them by this? Well, we don't want to make the mistake that God is telling us that that sexual relations between a husband and wife is something that's dirty or impure or shameful. God is not saying that at all. Sexual relations are a normal part of life. It's a way of life that God created. But God is wanting them to realize first of all, that He was not to be worshipped in the same way as the pagans were to be worshipped. Sex was a huge part of, of pagan worship, of idol worship. Many times, people would, uh, the pagans would approach their gods, Through the use of sex, it was how they actually worshipped. And it sounds so crazy to us today You know, to think of worshipping as going to a temple and engaging in sex. But you had temple prostitutes, and this was their whole function, was to allow people to come to the temple to engage in sexual relations. And so God was making it clear, this is not how I am to be worshipped. I'm to be worshipped in a different way. And I think God was also asking them to abstain from sexual relations as a way of consecrating themselves so that they might be fully alive and fully aware of Him. God was asking them to abstain from anything that might dull their senses, you know, anything that might distract them. And we understand that the physical act of sex is one that does tend to dull our senses. Uh, to, to uh, uh, make us less aware of what is going on. And so you can think of abstaining from sexual relations as a form of fasting. It, was, it wasn't avoiding something dirty or impure, but it was giving up a normal physical function as a way to focus on the spiritual, to focus on God's presence, to give something up for a greater good. And so God was calling the people to consecrate themselves so that they could give themselves to a full experience of God so that they would be in a state where they were fully prepared uh, to experience God's presence. Now, the command for consecration dealt not only with the people. The people were to consecrate themselves. But then God goes on to tell them, you are to consecrate the mountain itself. He tells them, you are to build a barrier around the mountain. They are to put up a fence of some kind. That's to keep animals and humans from trespassing onto the mountain, from wandering onto the mountain without really realizing it. Later, God is going to specifically tell Moses, go down and warn the people not to deliberately break through the barrier that's been set up. If they do, they're going to die. And so the mountain that God uh, was on, the mountain that was set apart, was holy because God had descended upon it. Because the mountain was holy, it was now to be exclusive to God. It was to be set apart it could not be trespassed upon. It was reserved for God's exclusive use, for God's exclusive possession. And so they were to consecrate it by building this boundary uh, around the mountain to keep themselves apart. And only Moses was to cross this boundary. Now, by setting up the mountain or setting up the boundary, God was making it clear They were not to trespass on what was his, either accidentally or deliberately. The boundary meant they had to approach God on his terms. They couldn't come on their own terms. Now, this also was a big part of pagan religion. Pagan religions allowed the worshiper to pick and choose the God they would serve. There was a God out there for everybody. And no matter who you were, no matter what your profession was, no matter where you lived, you could find the God that best suited you. If you lived in the mountains, you got a God of the mountains. If you lived by the river, you wanted a God of the river. If you, wanted a soul, if you were a soldier, you wanted a God of war. Uh, and so you might want a political God. You could pick and choose the God that you thought would best suit you the God that would best meet your needs. And God is telling the Israelites, I am holy. I am totally separate, totally different, totally unique. And what that means is, you don't get to pick and choose how you're going to come to me. If you're going to be holy, if you're going to be my people, you're going to come to me on my terms. You must approach me by recognizing I have the right to dictate the terms. So, they had to recognize God's sovereignty, God's ownership, His right to possess what was His. Now that He was on the mountain, the mountain was holy and the mountain was God's, they no longer had a right to trespass on that mountain. Now, the boundary also taught them that God was infinitely valuable, and of infinite worth. Exodus 19, 21, The Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord. Now, basically God was telling them, Warn the people not to force their way through so that they can gawk at me, so that they can satisfy their curiosity." God was telling Moses, I will not be a spectacle, something for the people just to amuse themselves with. My holiness means that I must be respected, that I must be valued. I cannot be trifled with or treated casually. God's holiness resides in the fact that there is no other. God is totally unique. Isaiah 40, 25, God asked the question, To whom will you compare me? And so God wants them to understand his holiness is his absolute uniqueness. And this means that God is of infinite value. You know, as long as something is common, as long as something is everywhere, it's a very little value. It's only when something becomes rare that it becomes valuable. So, it's only when the people realized God's holiness, God's exclusiveness, that they also realized God's infinite value. Then they would begin to treat God with the respect that He demanded from them. So, it was essential that they recognize the preciousness of God because that is what is required to truly worship God. To worship literally means... To see the worth of. You worship what you perceive as of ultimate value. And when we are worshiping God, we are recognizing His true, infinite value as the Holy God, the God who is utterly unique, unlike any other. And so true worship is only possible when God's holiness is recognized. John Piper writes Worship is possible only. When the mind rightly understands God and the heart rightly values God. And this is possible through His holiness. First Chronicles chapter 16 tells us, Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. This is how we truly worship God. Now, God required them to consecrate the mountain because He wanted them to understand The mountain was holy, therefore it belonged to him alone. Joel Scrandit writes, At bottom, God's call to be holy is a radical, all-encompassing claim on our entire lives. Our lives are not our own. And he goes on to write, More than any other American value, the notion that we are the masters and proprietors of our own lives, this stands in direct opposition to our call to be set apart to God. To be holy means that all we are and all we have belong to God, not ourselves, and that every aspect of our lives is to be shaped and directed toward God. And this was the essence of what God wanted to communicate to the Israelites. He's about to give them His law, to give them in detail what it would mean to be His holy people. But to introduce them to the law, He wanted them to consecrate themselves, to take these steps to understand what it means for God to be holy and for them to be holy. Before He appears to the Israelites to bring them into a covenant relationship with Him, God made two demands. He demanded that they consecrate themselves by washing their clothes, by abstaining from sexual relations. And He demanded that they consecrate the mountain by setting up a barrier and refusing to trespass upon the mountain. So God wanted them to understand He was a holy God. And this meant, first, that he was a God of absolute moral purity, and secondly, that he was completely and totally unique. He was in a class by himself. If God was going to live among them, if God was going to make them holy by his presence, it would require them to be his exclusive possession. They would have to consecrate themselves to separate themselves from impurity and separate themselves to God, to be owned by God. And God is making the same demands of us today. He's calling us into a covenant relationship with Him, a relationship in which a holy God fills us with His Spirit and makes us His holy people. But to be His people, to be holy... We must consecrate ourselves. We separate ourselves from lives of impurity. We surrender ourselves to the full ownership and control of a holy God. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul offers a prayer for the Ephesians where he prays that the Ephesians might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And this is one of the best definitions of holiness that I've come across. Holiness is being filled to the measure of the fullness of God. It's when God's spirit is fully active, when God is fully expressed in our lives. Holiness is having God fully present in all of his glory, in all of his power, where God fills us completely, saturating Our lives. So holiness is God's Spirit enabling us to experience a life really that we could not believe possible otherwise. Paul goes on to write to the Ephesians in chapter 3, verse 20 Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Paul is telling us the full expression of God in our lives, having His Spirit with His power fully at work within us will create in us a life that's more than we could ever expect or hope for. It's even more than we could possibly imagine. So why don't we live such a life of power? Why do we find ourselves living such anemic spiritual lives? Why are we limping along, living far below the potential that God has made us for? Why do we deprive ourselves of the holiness that God desperately wants to give to us? God wants His Spirit to be fully present and active in our lives. So why wouldn't we have that? And it's because we aren't willing to recognize God's exclusive ownership and possession of our lives. We want to keep control. We want to insist that that we decide for ourselves. And if we are going to be holy, if we're going to have God's presence fully active and fully in control of our lives, we must recognize God's right to full possession and ownership of us. John Wesley, each year, would pray what he called a covenant prayer. And he would pray this at the beginning of the year, and uh, this is a tradition continued in the Methodist church and in many other churches uh, today, where they they pray this, this prayer of covenant. This is a prayer where Wesley recognizes His life is not his own. Instead, he is God's possession. He is owned by God and he wants God to use him. And so as we close out today's uh, lesson, I want to pray Wesley's covenant prayer. And I want you to pray it along with me. If you want God's uh, holiness to be part of your life, if you truly want to be a holy person filled with the holiness of God. So let's let's pray Wesley's prayer uh, as we close. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee Let it be ratified in heaven. Amen.